Blog Talk Radio. Bad News Bears in there and see, and I'll see what all the fuss is about. 
And the first thing, as, as I said before, the first thing that comes to my mind is, oh, my God, this is the template for, for everything, for every youth sports movie I've ever watched. And I was starting to think about, like, Little Giants and when we were talking about the Mighty Ducks. They literally just rehashed the same plot, almost beat by beat. <laughs> it's amazing. And it all started with the Bears in 19... Uh, well, 1976, the year I was born. How about that shit? So what do you make of all that? This 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 idea that uh, there doesn't appear to be an original youth sports movie coming out of Hollywood. It's all the bad news bears. Change sports. Change the sports. Change the characters. It's not a series that, that exactly is not all, all terribly enthusiastic about. I mean, it's it's good. The first movie, at least, is one of those movies that, growing up, especially if you're somewhere between roughly my age and Mark's, and chances are you saw it at some point, uh, possibly because you happen to have a, a parent or uncle or something who remembered it from when they were, from when they were growing up or from when they were at least younger, and they might have popped it in. So you might have caught it at some point, and it's certainly fun to watch it for no other reason than because the first movie especially, you've got a combination of not just a couple of Hollywood legends and Walter Matthau and Vic Morrow on opposing sides, but you've also got young Tatum O'Neill and Jackie Earl Haley cutting their teeth in their earliest starring roles, so you know, that's something. Uh... It, it's predictable. It's fairly light and fun. Uh, the thing you've always got to remember about it is it's a product of its time. So when you see things like Walter Matthau loading up a bunch of kids into his convertible with no seat belts and a bunch of beers to go on a little cruise, you know, you, you can't really go full-on modern-day Maud Mod Flanders clutching at pearls. Because, again, product of its time. It is what it is, and that was a thing that was back then. Uh, it's, it's something that my, that my dad and my uncles kind of reminisce about um, the grown-ups doing back when they were kids, even back in the 60s, which predates this movie by a good decade or so. But it's it's interesting to go back and look at the earliest blueprint. I, I guess if you were to look at movies like The Mighty Ducks, Little Giants, uh, Little Big League, um, uh, Rookie of the Year, just about any youth-oriented sports movie except maybe The Sandlot that came out, in the 90s or so, and then you were to go and look at this, it's like looking at an Apache helicopter and then looking just over to the left and and just kind of staring agape at Leonardo da Vinci's uh, first pedal-powered flying machine and just kind of marveling both at how far things have come and how much kind of at their base they've sort of stayed the same. It's also one of the only movies where I can somewhat recommend the remake. 
Yeah, you heard me. The 2005 remake starring Billy Bob Thornton is actually surprisingly good. I mean, if you're one of these people that, and again, I'm just, I'm never going to stop poking you people with sticks. One of these people who objects to every remake that comes out strictly because it's a remake and you're convinced that remakes and adaptations are never good, uh, you're probably going to shake your fist in indignant rage at it. But, of course, on the other hand, fuck your couch. Because it's actually good. Uh, There are such movies, rare as they may be, wherein somebody goes and decides to remake them and actually has a pers- has a perceptive eye for what the spirit of the movie was, what made it fun in the first place, uh, what performers can really do the movie justice, and to everyone's shock, occasionally you get a movie like um, uh, High Noon. Okay, High Noon was one. Or no, not High Noon, uh, True Grit. There was the remake of True Grit that came out uh, not all that, that long ago. Got surprisingly good reviews. 310 to Yuma was a remake. Got really good reviews because it was done right. Uh, the remake of Carrie, starring Chloe Grace Moretz. To my absolute, utter, undying shock, was actually better than the... Brian De Palma version that came out that came out in the seventies. It happens. It's possible. It all depends on who's on who is behind it. Um, because as this movie and everything that came after it demonstrates, there really isn't that much that's new under the sun. It just depends on how well you execute the new the old formula and what kind of spin you manage to put on it. Agreed. Um... One of the things that I really liked about, um, like I said, I I have no real relationship to baseball. Um, as an adult, I've come to appreciate it. Uh, my father-in-law is a huge fan, so I've gone to see a bunch of Rays games. I live in Tampa. I've gone to see a bunch of Rays games uh, with my in-laws and my wife and now my kids. Um, and so I have fun when we go to the games. Like, I have fun when I go you know, to any live event. I am a fan of going out to live events, whatever they may be. Uh, And I've enjoyed the baseball games that I've gone to. Um, When I lived in New York, I caught a couple of Yankees games, and it was fun to go to – it was fun to go to Yankee Stadium. Yankee Stadium is one of those places where the history is in the wood. You know, you can can feel – you can feel uh, the history when you sit there and, you know, and watch the game. And um, when I went to WrestleMania 14, I believe my friend and I got, had a chance to go to uh, uh, Fenway. So uh, there you have that. But for the most part, I'm not a huge fan of baseball. I, t- I definitely don't watch it on TV. I don't follow the World Series at all. Um, you know, I go to football, I'll at least watch the Super Bowl. And uh, I... <laughs> We were we were talking before, and, and we'll get a little bit into it because it plays a part. It does play a small part of the um, of the narrative, you know, the the concept of high stakes uh, youth sports. I played the little league when I was a kid, but I only lasted one season. Um, my coach was my coach was a dick. 
uh, I was playing outfield and I wasn't good. And instead of sort of trying to teach me the finer points of playing the position and, um, you know, and how to catch and everything. And I would, the ball would, uh, the ball would go up high. I'd lose it in the clouds and I can sort of start turning around going where the hell the ball go. And I'd hear my coach going, which way did it go? Which way did it go? And to be almost 40 and to have that being the most resounding memory I have of my little league year, year, um, <laughs> tells me that it was a, that it was a memory that stayed with me and most likely caused me to quit playing baseball. I would later go on to things like wrestling, never lost, never lost my opponent in the clouds when I was wrestling. So, um, so but grown up, grown up, grown up, stop brewing sports for your kids. Stop it. Stop it. But I can certainly appreciate what's going on in this movie. Um, before we get into the actual movie itself, I know Sean wanted to talk a little bit about, you know, the, whether portrayed in the movies or some stuff that just ha- happens in real life. And we touched on this when we talked about the Mighty Ducks. But um, we, for the last uh, couple of years, maybe longer, uh, we, we've certainly had a culture of high-stakes sports um, in, in America and youth sports in America. And, you know, to, to a degree, part of that is fueled by, you know, your child rising up out of humble beginnings and making it into uh, the professional leagues of whatever sport we're talking about. Um, and there's money to be made there, big money. You know, if you ever watch the show Ballers with, uh, with The Rock and Rob Corddry, that's, you know, it, it, it's an archetype now. The... Uh, Black kid from the ghetto rises up to become star football player, goes to college, gets drafted in the NFL, buys his mom a huge house, and then has to, you know, have guys like The Rock manage his money for him before he goes broke. Oh, you know what? As much as I as much as I like Ballers, no, there are even better shows about that than Ballers. Uh, the one I would throw out there, is, although. I can't think of anywhere it's actually available for streaming. Feel free, anybody who wants to chime in. I I know Jesse Starcher is a big documentary buff, so he might know some place that can be watched tonight, and I don't. Or there's Jason Teasley, Andrew Graham, somebody out there who's usually playing the home game. Um, it only ran for a very short time, basically because the NFL held a gun to ESPN's head and basically – and basically told them, if you still want, if you still want and value our money, you will take this show off the air yesterday. And that's Playmakers, uh, which, if the ensuing years since then have shown anything, it's the fact that it was it was more accurate, I think, than Roger Goodell or Paul Dagnew ever wanted to admit. Um, that's a, that, that's a much better vision of, of pro football anyway. But the other ones I would suggest, uh, Esquire did an interesting series called Friday Night Types, um, which was actually fairly controversial. It was centered on uh, Texas youth football and just how utterly, absolutely pants-on-head insane uh parents and coaches get down there in the Lone Star State 
about grooming their kids early. We're talking about there being an actual weekly slate of radio shows devoted to youth football. And when I say youth, I don't mean we're talking like prep sports, like like high school, not even junior high. We're talking like eight and nine-year-olds. Um, it's it's utterly insane. And man, while we were while we were talking before we got on the air, uh, there was still another documentary that I watched recently. I can't remember the name of it. Uh, it was it, it focused on like a handful of sets of ridiculously over-involved, super intense, I will live my dreams through my children, damn you parents. And their high school age or even younger kids and and the amount of pressure they put on them. It is absolutely, utterly insane. Just uh, the lengths people go to. But I mean, Mark, I can I can make all the observations I want to, but the fact is, I'm a prospective one day stepdad to two cats right now. You're an actual father of two. Not only that, but you're a clinical social worker. I mean, uh, how do you how do you get adults who somehow manage to be this utterly obsessed? and cutthroat and just ridiculously animated over kids' games? I think, well, I think it depends on the atmosphere. Um, I mean, my kids play sports through the Y, and the the Y is all about community, Um, the people that are in it. No one's coming out of the Y and going into professional anything. Um, if If your kid is... We know a kid who's going to be a professional soccer player. The, kid's being, the kid has been groomed. I'm married almost 10 years now, and I have known this kid since I met my wife. And he's been, really? he was they were grooming him for professional soccer before I met her. Um, so he's not – but he's not playing at the Y. He plays on a traveling soccer team that's preparing him for possibly playing in um, – I guess it's MSL. Um and he's traveled to Europe and everything else. You know, my daughter who played two seasons of Y soccer, everyone there knows it's for fun. Nobody there, um, thankfully, <laughs> I can't tell this one story. Um, we had a, the first year that, that my daughter played, she played when she was three. And I coached, uh, me and another parent coached. And we had one little kid on our team, um, who got exponentially better with each game, and he was really, really fast. So my team tended to score more. Now, we didn't keep score. This is one of those scoreless leagues. You know, we're all there for fun. We're there for community. Whereas, you know, and, and while I don't want to get into a side debate over scoring, not scoring, and, and, and all that stuff, that's a whole other topic. I'm okay with at three years old, we don't keep score. Okay? I'm re- I really am. Um, you're there just to keep, teach the kids the fundamentals of socialization and fair play and getting them moving and being healthy. That's really what's more important than anything else. And I think all the parents know that, um, especially the ones who sign the kids up for soccer, who show up to the field and five minutes into it are bawling and crying. You really aren't then focused on scores. You're more focused on why is my kid a basket case? 
So that being said, uh, we had one on our team who got exponentially better with each game and was twice as fast as everybody else on the field to the point where parents started (laughs) – parents on the other team, because we kept playing the same team week after week, thought it was unfair that we had – that because we were playing five-on-five, and they were like, well, it's not fair to have five-on-five when he's that fast and he's that good. We should have the the entirety of the other team playing playing versus us five. (laughs) I'm not joking about that. People were – and it turns out that the parents – Outside of practice, we're having the kid get private, private soccer tutoring, essentially. Um, so, yeah, that's why he got better. But who fucking cares? It's scoreless three-year-old soccer. Yeah. But I'm not joking when I tell you that there were limits to people's patience, and that went past it. It's <laughs> like, well, how see, dare this kid be that much better than everybody else? Uh, two, uh, two things. As, as both a non-parent and a kid who played youth sports growing up, my take is you learn to balance playing to win with also teaching about sportsmanship, leaving it, all, leaving it all on the field and understanding and learning how to lose. Because uh, if I may wax philosophical for a moment, there's much to be said about learning the value of failure in life and learning how to take advantage of it and reap the benefits of it. And I think that is an immensely important lesson for a lot of children to learn. Because there are a lot of adults who never learn it. Um, mm-hmm. who grow up fall, who grow up, fall on their fall on their ass and they just don't know what to do because from junior high right through high school They've never failed at anything, either just because they're that good or because in some instances, uh, in some environments, they're just not allowed to fail. They're just pushed through kind of regardless of whether they're on that same level or not. And it doesn't really condition them for a real world that doesn't play by those rules, no matter how much everybody may wish that it would. That being said, and that's an entirely separate topic, uh, when it comes to some sports, the, the interesting thing to me is the fact that you have some sports out there where there are ample opportunities for high-level players, once they reach a certain level, to bypass the collegiate level entirely and just go straight on to the fast track to being a professional prospect, sports like uh, tennis, golf. Uh, I don't know if it's quite as much as it was once upon a time, but baseball uh, historically has allowed a lot of young, particularly promising prodigies to just bypass college entirely, go straight to the minor leagues, and that's it. They're straight from high school to being a full-time baseball player. Hockey is another, is another one. You get a kid, and I really kind of hope Andrew Graham is listening right now because he lives up in Canada, which is pretty much culturally the hockey capital of the world. And one of the places where if you are a particularly strong player, yeah, that can be the fast track, the fast track to a pro career. 
is you move on from, and I, by all means, again, Andrew, anybody else, chime in if I get the levels wrong here. You move on from, like, uh, I think, like, peewees to juniors to high school high school to possibly getting picked up by a minor league team. It's it's not like bas like football and now there's an age limit in the NBA, basketball, because those two leagues have age limits. Um, the NBA instituted that obviously a few years ago because there was a stretch of about a decade or so where almost every year one of the top picks in the draft was always some high school kid. And sometimes it was a Kobe Bryant or it was a Kevin Garnett or it was lesser extent, a Tracy McGrady. Other times, yeah, you got someone like a Jermaine O'Neal. The bigger point being is that sometimes you had – Kids who were able to come out of high school and come right into the pros, and they were basically ready for it. They were ready to jump right into that world because by that point they had been more or less groomed for it. Their parents and coaches had realized, probably since about junior high or high school, that this kid wasn't just a cut above. This kid was about a was about a world above everybody else around him, and really something special. Really a once in a lifetime player. And so the LeBrons and the Kobe's and the Kevin Garnett's, they all became exceptionally groomed and they started directing their compass toward what was going to be pretty much a surefire, uh, lucrative, long, successful professional career. And in those three cases, and yeah, we'll throw in, and again, we'll throw in like Tracy McGrady in there, even if he never played up in the level of the other three. Uh, it really was. It was the right. It was the right move. But the thing that a lot of parents either don't understand, understand it, and they ignore it, or they misunderstand, is that it's like what my dad always taught me when I was growing up playing sports. Is he was very honest with me right from the right from the beginning. He expected me to go out there, try hard, play my play my best because he wanted sports to instill those qualities in me. But he also told me all the time, he would say, look, people you see playing on TV, that each one of them is one in millions who's able to play up to that level and is able to make a living doing it. But of course, what I kind of, what I kind of saw growing up and what I've seen from parents nowadays is every parent who has a kid who's just tearing it up in peewees, or or in your case, or in one of the kids' cases, Mark, that you know, happens to be a real soccer prodigy that looks to be on the fast track to the MLS or any or any number of. Uh, really prestigious like European leagues. Um, not everybody is not everybody is that good. It's a skewed understanding of having every parent kind of think that their kid 
that their kid is that good. Um, obviously, every parent wants their kid to have playing time, but also then you have the parents who think that they have to become directly involved in the game every time the game isn't suiting them. And I realize that that's a a riled-up parent thing that I'm never going to get because I, quite frankly, as I've said many times, I, as of right now, have no intention of having kids. I don't like them. I just don't want any of my own. But I've also seen how goddamn embarrassing that can be. Um, well, when I, well, for example, uh, for a number of years when I grew up, I grew up in Mitchell, South Dakota. Uh, to a lot of people, that's a totally inconsequential town. To some people, that is, oh, that's the home of the world's only corn palace. Um, it, it is basically a big cluster box. Well, at the time it was. It's grown massively since then. It was a big clusterfuck of tourist traps in South, in South Dakota. Um, other people, as some more well-read NBA fans, may know that as the hometown of Mike Miller, who is a former NBA Rookie of the Year. I think he won, might have been a, a sixth man or most improved player, possibly both. Uh, had a good run and was instrumental in the Miami Heat, uh, one of their two championships that they won with LeBron James. Um, and one of the reasons he's such a product of that town is because it's like the best, at the time it was a basketball mecca of South Dakota. It, basketball is a huge deal there. Basketball is to Mitchell, might be is, I know it's piece that it was, I haven't been back there in years for good reason. Uh, it was what football is to uh, the the West Permian Panthers in Texas, a Friday Night Lights fame. And I went to school with a lot of these kids whose, whose parents would just like uproot the whole damn family on weekends and pay these hundreds of ridiculous dollars to put their kids in these... Uh, independent traveling basketball leagues and outfit them with hundreds of dollars worth of worth of brand new speaker brand new sneakers and gear every season uh, camps just just everything it was just absolutely utterly insane and it was the same thing that I saw from the hockey parents in Minnesota um, on the weekends, you know, when I was fortunate enough to be able to sleep in until it was time to wake up and watch Wrestling Challenge and then go downstairs and try for four hours to beat Castlevania and Blaster Master on my NES, uh, so my friends and their family were driving everyone halfway up and down that frigid hellhole that Ontario didn't want and just to go watch like kids between about 9 and 12 years old go play go play hockey um, it, it's absolutely utterly insane and I, I get it you know if you have the money 
you you kind of don't want to deny your kids any anything. You want them to follow their dreams and what they want and what they want to do. But I guess it's just a mentality that I could never get because I was always just happy with the fact that every summer I had park and rec softball and in the winter I had park and rec basketball. And in between, you know, my dad was always happy to go out and play catch with me and hit balls to hit balls to me. And I became a I became a pretty good outfielder in softball, and I you know, was a very okay basketball player. Uh, but never to the point, and I even asked him about it sometimes because I kind of wanted it was that little kid wanting to belong thing. I would ask him about wanting to play on a traveling team or something like that, and. And he flat out tell me, no, that, that money and uprooting a fam, rooting a family and putting everybody on pause just so kids can play basketball or baseball or hockey, it's ridiculous. So, I don't know. And, and you see so much of that in this movie and in this movie and other movies. It, it's almost kind of a comfort that I, I really don't sort of want to hear anybody who kind of grew up with this say in the time of this movie say ah, parents and kids nowadays with the youth sports we were never like that in our day it was just about the game it was just about the fun I just want to go really <laughs> really really it so, wasn't so, so what so, so Bill Lancaster just made all this shit up like hell. I think that's a good uh, way to transition into the actual movie. Because um, the plot of this thing, and I'm going to somewhat read this off the Wikipedia page. Um, we have Walter Matthau, who's Morris Buttermaker. He's a former minor league baseball player and an alcoholic who cleans swimming pools. And he is recruited by city councilman and, and attorney... Uh, who filed a lawsuit against the competitive, the whole point we were, that's the whole reason for that rather long preamble, competitive Southern California Little League, which excluded the least athletically skilled children, including his own son, from playing. So to settle the lawsuit, the league agrees to add an additional team, which is the Bears, which is composed of sweat hogs. By the way, <laughs> I've been using, <laughs> I use that term with my wife all the time, um, just as a, a very, very short aside, she got stuck with a lot of the worst performing kids in her school, um, for her, her, her class. Like she got like the worst behaved, all the crazy. She just, you know, she's first grade and she got everybody. And I have, <laughs> and so since the beginning of the year, I keep referring to them as, you know, the sweat hogs. And I get that most people aren't going to get that reference, but it makes me laugh. I I think of I think of I think of two things and two things only. Number one, obviously, I think of Welcome Back, Cotter. Sure. And number two, I think of every absolutely glorious pre-match Rick Rude promo ever. <laughs> Definitely um, channeling Mr. Cotter when I say sweat hogs. And, and, and not think, oh, you fat, out of shape, inner city sweat hogs. That's right, Rick Rude. Buttermaker becomes uh, coach of the unlikely team um, after getting a handsome check. Uh, so on this team, you have a nearsighted pitcher, an overweight catcher, who, by the way, <laughs> this poor kid who plays Engelbert, 
number one, got fatter with each film, poor kid. And number two, <laughs> number two, my wife referred to something one of her friends had was this standing bitch face. He has standing retard face. And a couple other kids do. <laughs> and and considering it's 40 years ago, they're all grown up and adults now. These people are in their 50s. I'm, I'm going to go ahead and say it's okay for me to make to, to make some remarks about the, the physicality of some of these children. This is a team who I feel like in casting, they're like, well, we want, we want blonde kids because that'll sell tickets. But they went with a, with a cast of blonde kids who all have standing retard face. Like, it was the weird of watching this. And because it's the 70s and they know how to let a camera just sit on a face and let the, and let the face do the acting for you, I'm watching this going, ugh, these look like Rorschach paintings in some cases. My God. So, <laughs> which brings us to Tanner, who is a foul-mouthed shortstop with a Napoleon complex, who's my favorite character in this movie. Um, and then we have uh, a black kid um, who uh, idolizes Hank Aaron. We have two English-speaking Mexican immigrants. Uh, we have Timmy Lupus, who's, a, who's the withdrawn, bullied kid, and uh, some others, some other little blondies. In the in the uh, in the Bear Squadron, they are sponsored by Chico's Bail Bonds, and in their opening game, they are completely shut out, 26 to zero, no outs, uh, before Buttermaker finally ends ends this painful thing. So um, here's where now 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 no no wait a second wait a second now since that's kind of a pivotal turning point in the movie, let's um let, let, let's stop for a second and let's recount at least some of the tropes. The, yeah. The, some of the prototropes that are already showing up here. First off, uh, you have kind of a loser, loud head coach who uh, really isn't all that involved, involved in anything, doesn't necessarily want to be there, and might maybe need a little bit of a lesson or two in sportsmanship. Um. We have band, the the band of uh, misfit kids who are who are just all of them, almost every one of them, just the caricatures that show up again and again in every single sports movie ever since. There's the nerd, the fat kid, the you know the bully. The badass who we'll see later. The girl who we'll see later. Uh, the token girl, yes. We gotta have the token girl. Um uh, what else do we have? Uh oh, okay. Uh we have the first game when we have to exaggerate just how ridiculously bad and disjointed and uncooperative this team are this team already is in which they get absolutely uh, trounced by the same team over which, spoilers, uh, they're going to have to eventually face off again uh, at the end of the movie. And the Uh, team is never nice. They're never in any way sympathetic. They're all jerks. (laughs) They're all people who are like, oh, you, you you, you need comeuppance. It's never a situation where it's like, sorry, guys, better luck next time. No, they're always assholes. <laughs> That's always the way it is. 
It can't be enough that they're taking on a superior team, but a superior team of stalwart soldiers who are, you know, who are good to the game. Nope, it's always it's always jerks. Why can we not ever just have two fairly decent teams, or or maybe two, or maybe two bad teams that square off in the first? Yeah, why can't they, like, they, they play the worst team in the league first, and then the worst team even beats them pretty badly? And it's like, you know, and they kind of feel sorry for them. <laughs> or, or, like, hey, thanks for playing, guys. You've made us feel a lot better. <laughs> I'm already oh, sports what, team. That's what, what I'm going yeah, what, Wouldn't that be just so ridiculously compelling if somebody made a movie where, to, to make the comparison, you have – Two teams that are like the 1991 Minnesota Twins and 1991 Atlanta Braves, who just over the course of the season go from previously being other doormats, just complete afterthoughts to their respective opposition, to all of a sudden at the end of the season, they're playing a down-to-the-wire contest for the championship. And it's just an it's just a battle for the ages, and it comes down to a one to nothing game to decide it. Because here's the thing: would that be absolutely amazing? It would be. Because here's the thing with this movie: this isn't just about baseball. This isn't just about watching. Look, you know they're going to win or get close. But much like Rocky, much like uh, many other sports movies, this is about relationships. This is about people. If you aren't sympathetic towards these characters, if they are, if they don't, if they don't elicit some degree of care from the audience, then it doesn't really matter if they win or not. And you know, spoiler alert: they don't win at the end of this one. Neither does Rocky, for that matter. <laughs> but you cheer them, and, and it's a happy ending anyway because they uh, they they excel, they succeeded, and you love these characters, and you want to see them succeed. And that's the thing, like, what one of the things Sean and I are commenting on is, from the bad news bears on, you see the same thing in every movie. It's always, it's always the, you know, the jerks, the rich jerks versus the down and out losers. Plot point, plot point, plot point. And then they face each other at the end. And it's like, why can't we break with, you know- with, with with the tried and true formula and do a little something different if what the, what's important here are the relationships. You know what? First off, I will say this for the Bad News Bears, and this is one thing that really sets it apart that I just don't see in that many movies that follow it. And that's the fact that at the end of this movie, when the Yankees and Bears face off again, you have a contest in which the two earn a certain mutual respect for each other and both teams are kind of made better for the experience. Uh, you see that you see that in particular when the Yankee when the Yankees pitcher beams the uh, throws a bean ball at the kid and then gets smacked by gets smacked by his dad Vic Morrow, the coach, and then on the very next play just to make a point because he's so fed up with how how excessively ridiculously competitive everything has become and with the way his dad's behaving. Uh, he 
the, the hitter hits a weak ground ball to him, he catches it and just holds on to it and just lets the kid just touch him all for an in-park home run. Uh, you have the Yankees with a with a, with a, a genuine show of respect for the Bears and how hard they played, even though they lost a close game. You just don't see that. At the end, pretty much all you see at the end of the movies that followed this were the Dickwad rival team. It is still Dickwad. They've just been humbled at the end. You have maybe one, maybe two players who decide to show some sportsmanship, but even then, they're showing sportsmanship to the plucky underdogs, almost to the horror of, like, the coach and their dirty-playing cutthroat teammates. Or, in the case of the Icelandic team in D2, you know, the players who aren't necessarily nasty or cutthroat or dirty, but just happen to be better. Um... But you rarely see that where a whole team kind of comes through and they're the ones who have also learned the lesson and grown and kind of come 360 degrees since the movie started. That's the first thing I want to point out. The second thing I want to point out is I'm being messaged on Skype by a porn bot. And I am seriously tempted. <laughs> the, the message I get is, but I just took a bubble bath. You sound cute. Let's have some fun. I'm seriously tempted to screw with her. Not that way, you assholes. But I'm tempted to put, like, do you have a Pikachu suit? As you were talking, I'm reminded of one of my favorite movies growing up as a kid, Wildcats, which is a take on, on the same trope. You have a, uh-huh. uh, a situation where Goldie Hawn is uh, – elected to coach a, 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 a um, team of goofball football players. These are high school kids. Um, a team of goofball high school players. And the reason why she's picked is she's a girl, and she wants to coach football, and they won't let her coach in the, in the, in the high-class white school that she currently teaches track at. Uh, so she's like, well, you want to coach football bad enough? Here, go into the blackest ghetto possible <laughs> and go teach these miscreants how to play football and you know it's the same tropes it's the, the it's literally it follows the same thing one they don't trust her in the beginning and she doesn't even know if she wants to be there um it works as a better movie because goldie hahn's character is very sympathetic and she has a whole there's a whole little subplot with her family which is interesting but it follows the same tropes as this they're a bunch of goofballs there's a recruit with the next phase is is we got to recruit uh, new players to play for us uh, to fill the holes that we uh, that we currently have in our lineup. Um, at the end, they play they play the uh, the team that's being coached by the rival who did who didn't want her to coach in the first place. And the reason why I brought that up is because I is I'll always remember this, and it's such and it's such an example of a great example of what you're talking about. So this is a, so this, these are seniors in high school, and um, one of the things that happens is. Earlier on in the movie, Torillo uh, takes a bet that he can dent a gym locker, or, or, or it's the reverse of that. It's the regular uh, high school locker. And an enormous genius black kid says, that locker is thicker than the gym locker. You're going to get a concussion. And he, and he bets them. And, of course, that this is easy money, so he takes it. 
and if and the kid knocks himself out. <laughs> and so Colby Hawn says, "You owe me a player now." So he ends up playing against Will for the uh, for the football team. And at the end, because there are racial slurs that are hurled at them, and I think something about his weight. And eventually, he just you know he's like, you know what, I I want to crush these guys now. So he tries, and he actually plays well. Um, if by no other reason than he doesn't let people just run past him anymore. Uh, so at the end of the game, I think he blocks a, uh, a kick, which allows them to run, run it back for a touchdown. And the coach is yelling, check his, the coach is yelling, she paid him, check his jock. And all I remember is, check his jock, check his jock. And like, he grabs a football player, check his jock. I'm not touching his jock. <laughs> then you're all the team. Here, who cares? <laughs> And you see, sports, movie, sports movies nowadays, this is an element they're really missing, is the fact they aren't fun. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I mean, don't and, and don't get me wrong. I say this fully admitting that one of my favorite movies is Friday Night Lights. I absolutely love that movie. I will watch that anytime. Although, oddly, I've never watched the TV series. I just... I've always meant to, but I never had, but I never quite got around to checking it out. Anyway, nowadays, every time there's a, a sports movie that's coming out, it has to play on the the really inspirational, dramatic side of side of things, and everything has has to be a triumph of the human spirit, and it has to be so tear jerking. And you have to have these dramatic tour de force performances. But they yeah, aren't really fire are they? playing. Yeah. But <laughs> they but they but they aren't really all that enjoyable. I mean, what I remember about the baseball movies from when I was growing up, and I mean I'm talking right here about the holy trinity of the Sandlot, Little Big League, and Rookie of the Year. They were ridiculous. But they were fun. Mm-hmm. They were in, they were enjoyable. They they captured the spirit of like, baseball as just being a fun game. Um, By the way, Wildcats features a young Wesley Snipes before he started taking himself too seriously. <laughs> oh, Wesley Snipes! He, we we could almost give him just an entire show unto himself. Um, so but, moving on. Oh, I'm sorry. But, your point. But, but yeah, I mean, the, the bad news bears. It's stuff that, uh, again, like, like I said, the, the the clutching at pearls moments that would go on if uh, some of you were to watch these were to watch these movies nowadays, like how at one point. You have oh, hang on, let me find the line here in um, in my in my notes. Um, gosh, shit, where is it? Oh, yeah. Um, how do you have Tanner Boyle referring to referring to the whole of his teammates as quote a bunch of juice fixed niggers, pansies, and a greedy moron? You would never get away with that nowadays. And yet, you know, and keep in mind, this was this was even in the days before Call of Duty and online gaming. 
um, it certainly sounds like the, like the kind of things that things that some trailer park jackass eight year old would be say, would be saying over Xbox over Xbox Live or on Steam while playing Modern Warfare. And yet, it predates that by a good 30-some years or so. Um, and, 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 and to all you parents, seriously, to every last one of you who would watch this for the first time and just be, oh, just horrified at the horrible foul language they're using. Folks, again, going to tell you this, as a lifelong gamer, you don't think kids nowadays talk that way? You wanna fucking bet? By all means, by, by all means, sometimes, just, just for the hell of it, just for shits and grins, just grab a headset, grab a controller, log on, play Call of Duty. You will think you have stumbled upon a upon a white supremacist ra- rally populated entirely by munchkins from the Wizard of Oz. The number of prepubescent voices you will hear spewing the same epithets or worse. I mean, this is just again, it's what I love about it. It's an honest portrait of its time. It's not dumbed down. It's not sanitized. It is the way it is. It, it was the kind of thing, things, things that, yeah, kids said to each other back back then, according to my dad and my uncle, who did grow up during that time. Um, you just have to kind of, have to kind of just laugh at it in in utter in utter amazement, and just and just have fun with it. Just enjoy it. You know, it's not supposed to be a lesson. It's not supposed to be an instructional instructional video. It's supposed to be a little slice of adolescent fun. Remember that? Remember fun? All you, all you folk who grew up back in the 70s and clearly forgot about it? Remember back when toys were marketed to you by adults who clearly wanted you to kill each other? Like lawn darts? Actual chemistry sets? No, I, I mean, get in touch with that because, quite frankly, this is a genre that I would love to see come back, but I know it's never going to happen. All right, um, just kind of speed things along here. So we get to the we're sort of we're sort of all over the place. So Sean talked about a lot of what happens later on in the movie, but before we get there, and this is the part that I wanted to focus on before we move on to the next movie. Uh, we have the recruiting scene. Now, there's only two recruits. One is Tatum O'Neill's Amanda Wurlitzer. And this is the heart and soul of the movie right here. It's the relationship between Walter Matthau, who is uh, Amanda's mom's ex-boyfriend. And the whole reason he's recruiting her is he taught her to play baseball, and she's a good pitcher, and she hasn't played for um, – she allegedly hasn't played for a while, but she still has a good arm – and uh, they need a pitcher. What comes of that is uh, sort of, is sort of the father-daughter relationship that they have. And there's, a, there's sort of a creed moment in there where 
you know, he finally says, you know, I'm not your father and blah, blah, blah. And he makes her cry and everything. And it, made, it reminded me of Sylvester someone doing the same thing in Creed where he was like, you know, we're just two guys. We don't, we don't really know each other. We're not family. And of course he cries like, a, like, you know, <laughs> Michael, Michael B. Johnson cries like a little white girl. Um, same thing. The other uh, recruit, and again, this has become the big trope uh, in a lot of these sports movies, is recruiting the badass. You know, the, <laughs> the take no prisoners, obey no law, you know. <laughs> in, in the Mighty Ducks, it was Foggy Nelson. In this one, it's, um, uh, what's it say, Jackie Earl Haley. Yep. Who's yep. 13 years old, apparently, 12 or 13 years old, apparently, and riding a Harley and smoking cigarettes. Again, it's such okay. a product of the time, this movie. Two, two quick things. Number one, everybody who goes out to this podcast and watches this movie for the first time, when you see this kid, I want you to remember something. I want you to remember that kid will grow up to be Rorschach and Freddy Krueger. <laughs> That is who he will grow up to be. That's the first thing. Um, the second thing, and it's one of the things that this movie spawned, again, so very many cliches that for those of you who remember Clerks the Animated Series, whether you happened to catch it a couple times it aired on ABC or you, or you discovered it on DVD, um... It became the foundation for one of my very favorite episodes, uh, wherein Dante, who uh, was the oft-humiliated manager of his high school baseball team, uh, becomes the manager of a little league of a little league team, <laughs> who is. Uh, pretty pretty much just about exactly like the Bad News Bears, so much so that they're pretty much referred to by the exact same cliches, including the weird porn kid. Um, uh, the, uh, the for, for the Jackie Earl Haley role of the older kid that Dante has to somehow convince to play. He ends up, with, he, he ends up recruiting Jay and Silent Bob. And it is, it is absolutely Absolutely, utterly hilarious. Um, it, and it becomes, it somehow, the, the whole episode somehow becomes a pastiche of The Last Starfighter, The Bad News Bears, Indiana Jones of the Temp- and the Temple of Doom, and for good measure, a reference to the end of Return of the Jedi that included Charles Barkley as a ghost. <laughs> All right. Uh, in the interest of time, I don't have a whole lot more to say. Um, I, I mean, we've we've talked about the film um, in bits and pieces here and there over the course of the last hour or so. Let me sum it up this way. It's definitely a product of filmmaking. Uh, there's a lot of silence in the movie, uh, the, you know, lack of music, lack of narration. There's just the camera and the actor, which is nice. It's it's when you go from watching Transformers movie to this. First of all, it's jarring. Second, you know, where they're just going to cram everything in the frame um, to nothing. Uh, one, number three, you know, cursing children. <laughs> cursing children was funny the first time I heard it in the movie, and then after that, I was like, all right, I can see why you know people, people remember 
about this, but the novelty has now worn off. Um, the movie is absolutely centered on Walter Matthau and Daniel. Um, without that, it's just it's sort of a series of skits. Um, and other that, it's a fine film. I really wish they had, you know, I guess on a $9 million budget when it makes 50 million, almost $50 million, uh, a sequel even back then, the the, uh, the profitability pig hostage you know has to be uh, has to be obeyed. I really wish they hadn't. It's one of these perfect little things that just leave it alone, don't bother it. It just it happens to be it exists well and fine by itself. It didn't need another that story. But we're gonna but it does continue and we're gonna talk about that. But um, it's really good. I talk about sort of the look of the kids, you know, there's standing retard face and all of that. But I mean, for child actors, especially in 1976, they're fine. They're exactly what they're supposed to be. They're a bunch of rough next dogs. Um, and they, they, and they do a fine job. No one looks like they're reading off a cue card. There are absolutely no Anakin Skywalkers in this movie. So <laughs> even the, the words of the, even the little American children look like they're actually acting. Um, hey, so yeah. I, uh, Mar- Marcus Aurelius, um, I want to kind of warn you, your reception on your call, for whatever reason, is going just a little bit wonky, so bear with me if I have to ask you to repeat something, because it's mostly it's mostly okay, but every now and then, um, I'm, there's a sentence or two where I'm kind of catching about every other word. Okay. Might be slow internet tonight, who knows, or blog talk who knows? I, I I don't know, and I won't know until I go back and hear it. So I appreciate you giving me a praise of the film. Let's move on here. Um, it's a fine film. Um, it's a fine film. The relationships are good. I don't have too many faults with it. The only fault is that they take me to tell this, this story. The following year, uh, on a... I don't know what the budget is. The following year... They have a sequel to the movie called The Bad News Bears and Breaking Rain. We lose Herman Maddow, and he's replaced with uh, William Dwayne, who won't show up until half the movie's over. Uh, the premise of the movie is that they're going to win um, as sort of the uh, mid-doubleheader uh, mid attraction. Uh, they're going to play four innings against the Houston Toros. And Whoever wins that game, that four-inning exhibition, will go, go on to play the, the Japanese team in a third movie that's horrible. But we'll get there. Uh, we, we lose Walter Matthau, as I said, who's replaced by William Devane. We lose Tatum O'Neill, who's replaced by Scott Bayo's cousin, Jimmy Bayo. What sounds like a joke, it sounds like a family guy thing, but it's not. They really, there really is a Jimmy Bayo out there who is the cousin of Scott Bayo, and he played Common Ronzini, <laughs> Common Ronzini spaghetti meatball and potatoes. I, I, oh, you goats, Common Ronzini, Ronzani, character. My my grandmother, God bless her. I know I've talked about this, but my my Italian grandmother used to spend her uh, her her elder age writing letters to, like, ABC and CBS, complaining about the portrayal of Italians on TV, especially during her soap operas, how they're either mob bosses or morons. And I feel like 
and I feel like how she would how she if she had seen this movie she would have complained about this one too. I okay now I now I all of a sudden want to sit down with Steph and watch this movie. Okay. <laughs> uh, just just to, to 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 move this along. The the plot of this thing is they start off with one coach he sucks, um, so now they don't have a, they they run him off. Jackie Earl Haley uh, recruits Common Ronzani uh, as a pitcher. They steal a van and they pile the kids into the into the van. They fool everyone into thinking that the local groundskeeper is going to be their chaperoning coach, and he's not. But uh, they they fool everyone thinking that he is. All these kids pile into the van. And they drive to Houston. When they get there, they run into a little bit of trouble with, with the police. This causes Jackie Earl Haley's character to go in search of his father, who I guess left the family when he was uh, five. And uh, he's currently living in Houston. He says to the, to the father, hey, we're in trouble. Can you please help us? Get us out of trouble and then coach this team. The team is, of course, at first resistant to him because you have to have that plot point in there. But eventually he wins them over, and in doing so, loses his son. Um, much like, much like the first movie, this relation, this whole movie is really anchored to that relationship between William Devane and Jackie Earl Haley. Without it, the movie is a shell of itself. Um, they are. They eventually. Uh, he he eventually wins back the love of his son, and they all you know they all go forward uh, together to the Houston game, which is called after two innings uh, due to, t- due to uh, running out of time. Um, William Devane, who at first was trying to do his son a favor, but is really bought into being a part of play chant. This, of course, wins over the crowd, which then wins over the officials. Um, I think there's a bit in there. Yeah, there's a bit where they can't get the one kid off the field. <laughs> yeah, Tanner's running around like a crazy person. You know, in what looks like a Marx Brothers routine, they can't get him off the field. They're chasing him and falling all over themselves. Uh, let them play, let them play. So they let them play. And at the uh, the end of four, they win the game. And there's your movie. Um, okay. So so again, running down the tropes here. Uh, this is our this is our our youth oriented sports movie sequel tropes. Uh, something fractures the magical chemistry that blossomed in the first movie. In this case, uh, they lose their coach, and they pretty much got to go. Pretty much got to go it alone, uh, which they have to because we have the raised stakes of a step up in competition. Uh, much like the Mighty Ducks had stepping up from their state pee, from their state peewee hockey league to the world stage. In this case, they are now step now stepping up from local teams to wanting to play a team from another state uh, in the Houston Astrodome. Uh, we have a new coach that has to win that has to win over the team. And Shades of the Mighty Ducks three right there. Uh, you have the focus being really narrowed down to sort of just one select one select player to kind of dial in on throughout the entire movie. In this case, it's Jackie Earl 
is Jackie Earl Haley as Kelly Leak. You have uh, at least one new player who is going to shake up the chemistry. Carmen Run Carmen Ronzoni, played by Jim, played by Jimmy Bayo, the uh, the flashy new start new starting pitcher that nobody quite knows what to make of. So okay, did did I miss any? No, you nailed it. Okay. Um, it's fine. Like I said, it's essentially it's, it's almost a rehash of the previous movie. It's like, hey, if you couldn't get enough of these characters, here's them again doing the exact same thing, only instead of focusing on Tatum O'Neill and Walter Matthau, let's focus on uh, let's let's focus on Jimmy Leak, or sorry, Kelly Leak rather. Let's focus on Kelly Leak and see what makes him tick. You know, let's get into his life. And it's fine. You know, I really, William Devane is uh, charismatic. He's uh, perfectly serviceable in this role. I wish they had made him a little deeper. I wish there was less of the road trip and more of, and, and more of a character in need of redemption. Because he just sort of, you know, he... He at first is resistant to the idea, but it seems like he's resistant to the idea because he's late for his date with his girlfriend. <laughs> and, then, and then along the way, he's almost perfect. There's nothing wrong with him. He's not doing anything wrong. Even when his son, you know, turns on him. I mean, Walter Matthau has that moment in the first one where he's pushing the team too hard. He's, you know, he keeps Amanda in the game despite her arm hurting and all of that. And he sees, he, he sees himself turning into the coach that he hates. And so he so he turns it back and and and, and remembers you know this, this is supposed to be fun for children, not uh, the Mets versus the Yankees in a Subway series. Um, there's not a lot of that here. William Devane, you know, he he's a good coach. He's sociable, um, and the the dramatic tension is that Kelly becomes jealous that he has all this love to give to the other players and not just to him. Um, and so you have that you were never there for me moment, you know, and they come back around to it. But again, it, it, it a little, it's a little shallow. It's a little unearned, but I'm moved by, I'm moved by the acting itself uh, so that I can look past some of those failures of uh, characterization. Um, definitely, also, uh, de- definitely beat the hell out of, Big deal. Father figures leave. No need to be a pussy about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, good old Robert Downey Jr., who I'm, who I'm starting to hate as that character. But that's a whole other podcast. Um, so I don't have a whole lot more to say about this one other than uh, they really should have stopped here. <laughs> there was no reason to continue after this. The characters are again do more of the same stuff. Tanner does more cursing. He almost says the exact same line again, you know. Where I, I no, he adds wop to it. He's like, oh, <laughs> niggers, retard, spicks, and now a wop, you know. And then Carmen almost beats the shit out of him, and they have to separate the two of them. Um, there's a whole subplot where Carmen is basically like a shyster, you know, and uh, he isn't quite living up to what he says he is, and, and then he does. All right, moving on. Um, <laughs> Moving on on to the Bad News Bears go to Japan, a.k.a., as I like to call it, holy shit, Antonio Inoki. (laughs) 
yeah, let's let, let's just move on. Again, we have about 15 minutes uh, till uh, the scheduled end of the show, so let, let, let's get on to one of the worst movies I've ever seen in my life. I'm not even joking about that. Um, there are movies I'm not entertained by. There are movies that are badly put together, and then there's a mishmash of I don't know what the fuck it is I'm supposed to be watching. All oh, I know is this, this was the tragic waste of the fact that there was no subplot in this movie wherein the man who eventually whips the bad news bears into shape and back into championship form is fucking Antonio Inoki himself. <laughs> That's actually the best scene in the movie. I, I, kind, I kind of regret that, um, that there was not more of the bad, of the bad news bears being just respectively stretched in the New Japan dojo. <laughs> All right, so here's the plot. Um, the Bad News Band are trying to get to Japan. Um, down on his luck, promoter uh, Martin Lazar, played by um, Tony Curtis, finds out about it, says, that's my ticket to ride. I can promote these kids. I'll make a mint. I'll be able to pay off my gambling debt. Um, they go to Japan. Lots of Japanese stuff happens. It be, it be, look, this is a 90-minute video featuring baseball set to, I think I'm turning Japanese, I really think so. <laughs> you see, the, the thing is, you joke about that, but man, I, I, am, I am geek enough to know that somewhere in Japan, that is a freaking thing. <laughs> That's all there is to this movie. A lot of Japanese, you know, I'm famous among my friends for saying Chinese Chinaman, which I stole right from Andrew Dice Clay. Lots of Japanese, a lot of Japanese, Japanese stuff happening. Um, a lot of Tony Curtis playing wacky promoter guy. More bad news bears doing the exact same shtick they did in two previous movies. That's gone. That's gone. Grown tired at this point. And an ending that made no sense to me. Essentially, um, they start to play the game. The game uh, ends with – the game is called when everybody runs in the field uh, and, and has a fight after Saturday gets one of the kids gets hit. Um, and then they just saw – and then there's this extended sequence that didn't – that's half in English, half in Japanese as the whole movie is where the promoter was trying to convince the, the Japanese baseball coach to come with him to America – and then they find the kids outside playing the game in, you know, in, in the dirt and having the time of their lives. Well, the, the director of programming, I guess, I wasn't sure quite what his role was, but the, the television guy says, hey, we got to get the cameras on these kids. They got, a, they got a whole half a game to play. And Tony Curtis says, screw you and your network. Sue me. Huh? <laughs> this is... This is like some graduate school film student, like, bullshit. You know, it was like, uh, I have an idea for a movie, but I'm trying to go for this other thing. And it's like half documentary, half youth sports movie. Um, I don't know what this, I don't know what John Barry was going for here, but it's terrible. It's hard to even call it a movie. It is definitely a waste of film stock. 
Nothing is good about this movie. Tony Curtis's character is annoying after five minutes. And there's a subplot in here about Kelly Lee trying to woo some geisha girl. I'm not entirely sure how he manages to change clothing because he because the team leaves him in whatever fucking city they were in, and they and somehow <laughs> find his way back to the team again by use of you know magic transporter. The best part of this movie, honestly, is when Engelbert goes on the Regis Philbin show with the other kids and says, "We're not going to let a bunch of nips push us around." <laughs> <laughs> It's the high point of the movie. It's about five minutes in. For for what it's worth, if anybody out there wants to actually watch a good movie, or at least a better than this movie about baseball in Japan, uh, go track down uh, Mr. Baseball, starring Tom Selleck. Uh, And I believe I believe Dennis Haysbert. Uh, Frank Thomas in all of his uh, I think early mid nineties glory is in is in it. It's really pretty. It's really pretty good, um, and definitely has a much more coherent plot. Um, that you know, and, and actually, when it when it comes to Japan and baseball, that movie, if anything, illustrates that it is kind of an interesting, different world. Um. So it feels like kind of a lost opportunity there that they didn't really explore that because that really could have been kind of interesting if you would have compared the ragtag, rough and tumble, insert further cliche, tougher than a government mule, by God, boomer, sooner, stone cold, or God's broken in half barbecue sauce. Um, Bad News Bears, um, when you contrast them with a really disciplined, precise Japanese team, that would have actually been kind of, been kind of fun. That might have been sort of interesting. Um, I think what the, what the movie is trying to be about is sort of the this idea of you have this re- very real – uh, salt-of-the-earth baseball team, and then you have this promoter who is trying to make it into something that it's not. And they, try to, they try to sell you on that with the interactions between my, my kid's name is Ahmed and, um, and him. And Ahmed has this whole monologue where, you know, where he tells him he's full of shit. And it's like, okay, but that comes out of left field because, first of all, half the movie's in Japanese and there's no subtitles. So like I said, you can kind of get what's going on, but it's a little confusing and it's not very good. It's not very entertaining or very good dramatically. And if you want to tell a story about the falseness of marketing, you know how how nothing nothing on TV is real. There's a story to tell. It's just not told very well here. So yeah, yeah. the movie doesn't really know what it wants to be. And it, and and you can't even say oh there's good relationships in this one because the only relationship that that there's kind of anything there is between C- Tony Curtis and and the little black kid who is Ahmed's brother and it's a shitty relationship that isn't believable. And you see, and the lack of subtitles is unfortunate because and I'm just I'm sure there's some 
otaku and, and weeboos out there who are probably going to want to string me up for saying this. I'll just say it anyway. Um, the Japanese language, if you're not accustomed to it, a lot of acting can kind of get lost in trans, literally lost in translation just because as Western audiences, we're not necessarily used to it. We're not used to the intricacies of the language, the subtleties of the culture. So I, I find I find that in anime a lot of times. It's why I kind of understand why some people would prefer dubs over subtitles. So if you don't have sub, have something to really accurately portray that, for this, accurately portray that or convey that and get that across and it's well translated, then it's just kind of a waste unless you are completely, purposely, uh, like in, say, Cannibal the Musical, just absurdly using the language barrier as a plot device. So, uh, but then again, you know, when it comes to this movie, if I'm to be perfectly honest, about my own rant, complaining about that is like bitching about the color of the deck chairs on the Titanic. It's it just it, it's complaining about something that is the very least uh, of this zero percent fresh on Rotten Tomatoes disaster. <laughs> no, I'm not kidding. Literally zero. No, I know you 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 mentioned it before I had a chance to, but yeah, zero percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah, yeah. Out of fifteen, out of fifteen reviews, zero per, since twenty ten, zero percent. Um, average rating two point seven out out of five from six thousand four hundred thirty user ratings. Um, so one other thing to tell you that tells you a lot about this movie. So I'm very reliant on the Wikipedia uh, plot uh, synopsis for yeah, yeah. To, to kind of get me through a lot of these shows. Sometimes I'll read them even after I've watched a movie to see that I miss something, that I miss a detail. The plot, as written on Wikipedia for this, isn't really the plot of the movie. It's, there's, a, there's a sentence or two that tells you about the plot. It's more of a plot synopsis. The remaining four sentences are about how certain actors weren't involved. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's... And it's literally like, yeah, you know, a small-time promoter hustler Marvin Lazar Carter sees a potential money-making venture in the Bears that will help him pay off the de- uh, his debts. After seeing a TV spot about the Bears, he decides to chaperone the baseball team for a trip to Japan in their match against the country's best Little League baseball team. As implied in breaking training, the Bears had to defeat the... Okay, so now we're talking about something that happened in a previous movie. Uh, the Houston Toros were a shot of the Japanese champs. In the process, the trip sparks up a series of adventures... Even the author of this piece doesn't know what they are. And mishaps for the boys. A subplot involves the interest of Kelly League and a local Japanese girl and the cultural divide that comes in to bear in that relationship. Yeah. <laughs> That's the plot, everyone. That was how the plot's written out on the Wikipedia page. So, in summation... <laughs> I'm, I, I, I'm trying to imagine somebody at some, at some point in, in the late 70s, early 80s, who was getting who was like getting ready to go take a vacation to Japan or something and wanted to bone up on the culture 
and this of all the movies was what they decided to watch to educate themselves <laughs> on just what Japan was all about. Well, let me let me say this, and then then we're gonna wrap. The uh, Red Letter Media guys surmised that Adam Sandler's movies are now pyramid schemes for places he yeah, wants to go on vacation. Um, they're, they're essentially they're, they're essentially ways to get his friends paid and ways for him to go on paid vacations and he's not really making yeah, movies okay. anymore. And this might have been this might have been where he got the idea from because I'm fairly certain that the uh, Leonard Goldberg, Fred and Fred T. Gallo, who are who are the producers of this thing, decided that they wanted to take a trip to Japan. And so let's fuck it. Let's just set the bad news bad there, and we'll throw together some sort of half-assed movie to justify it. Uh, see, you joke, but on the other hand, it's that it's pretty well documented that uh, what that the inspiration for the Doctor Who episode, Time Flight, was that one of the writers who worked on it was hoping to get a ride on the Concord during <laughs> production. This was the reason why that terrible episode existed. <laughs> there we go. All right. Um, that concludes our look at the Bad News Bad series. One good movie... Um, one one movie that's almost up to par with the with the first one, and the third one that should be sent into space, sent <laughs> and forgotten about. Um, check out our archives. We did a review of Captain America: Civil War. Um, on our, on my YouTube page, Jesse Starcher hosted a special episode of Source Material in which we did Marvel trivia. Uh, the the sound only episode will be uploaded uh, tomorrow night at nine o'clock. Um, the Hate Breed, The Concrete Confessional, and Money Monster both come out tomorrow. There'll be a Metal Hammer of Doom review on Tuesday of Hate Breed, and Robert Winfrey and I will review Money Monster on Wednesday. Sean and I will be back on Thursday to review the Major League Trilogy. Um, the fun- <laughs> uh, and that's it from the Long Road to Ruin for the month of May. However, um, our postponed Vector Terminal Redux Metal Hammer of Doom episode will take place on May 24th. We had to put it off because Rob had to work. Um, that Wednesday, we'll also be reviewing the new Angry Birds movie. Why Angry Birds? Because it's a movie I can take my kids to. I can't take them to see The Nice Guys or Neighbors 2, nor would I want to see it myself. Um, on the 27th, Alice Through the Looking Glass comes out. Uh, the new Jelly Jam, if you're into progressive rock, comes out, and X-Men Apocalypse. Um, we will be reviewing X-Men Apocalypse on June 1st, and Sean and I will be back on my birthday, June 2nd. I will be 40 years old, and I'll be spending my 40th birthday talking about X-Men movies. And um, that the following week, uh, Metal Hammer of Doom will be reviewing the new Hell Yeah. Um, myself, Jason Teasley, and Jesse Starcher will all be reviewing the new Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie. Rob Winfrey has said, if you make me review that movie, I will cut out my eyes. So <laughs> <laughs> he's being spared. Um, 
And then on uh, Thursday, June 9th, another long road to ruin. Uh, myself, Sean Comer, and a cast of thousands will, <laughs> will be uh, looking at the original Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles trilogy, otherwise known to me as Go Ninja, Go Ninja, Go Ninja, Go. Jesus, and then on Everybody wanted in on this one. Yeah, really. It's that it's, we might have yeah. to do this on Google Hangout. Um, and then just for shits and giggles, I'll let everyone know that if you're in the Tampa area, Friday, June 10th, my wife and I will be at the Orpheum seeing the new, seeing uh, Evolve, which is Drew Galloway and EC3 versus two versus Johnny Gargano and somebody I've never heard of because I don't follow you. You son of a bitch, I hate you. <laughs> well, join the club. Right. Well, well, I just, I, I will, I will always believe that Drew Galloway absolutely never, ever got his due chance in WWE. I agree. He had awesome theme music. I not, uh, yeah. Uh, oh God, damn! His his entrance music is still on my workout playlist. It's I good, think that's it? a perm, that is a permanent fixture there. Well, I think um, he, they were big on him, and then something personal happened, and then he got the shaft. And it was all no, down. I, I don't think I don't think that was it because I know what you're talking about. Everything that went down with his uh, now ex-wife Tiffany, uh, there was some ugly incident where I guess uh, she attacked him in a hotel in a hotel room. Uh, but that happened years before he actually got released. Uh, he was he was kind of one of those Wade Barrett types where they sort of let him hover near the top of the card, but never really mustered the grapefruits. That was the big problem here. He was perpetually, Wade Barrett was perpetually injured. I don't know if that well, was the case. Well, well with, with, with Wade, it was a combination of injured with terrible timing and also John Cena making what has been acknowledged as one of the worst uh, booking campaigns in in like the last decade of wrestling history. And so it was so bad that even Edge and Chris Jericho would probably called him out on it to the point that even Cena pretty much had to admit, yeah, okay, fine, I made a bad call. And just Barrett never totally recovered from it. But you said he's teaming with uh, EC3? Yes. EC, I don't know if you know this, but EC3 showed up to an Evolve show and basically went on a rant about how um, NXT and the WWE are bullshit and that if you get over outside of the WWE after you've been through there and been crushed by their uh, by their machine, then you're ostensibly a bigger star than anybody else in the industry. Well, I, 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 I kind of disagree with, with him talking shit on NXT because right now NXT is about the only thing keeping my love of professional wrestling alive. Uh mm-hmm. sure roster product. Um at least not at least not much lately, despite glimmers of hope. Um but I, I would watch that because I would think that once um once the life support on TNA finally gives out, uh I would hope that he and Drew would be two of the guys that WWE would look at again and say, Wow, uh, maybe we did drop the ball with you guys the first time. How, would you give us another go? Um, yeah, well, I really like EC3. He's one of the few glimmers, glimmers of light in TNA that I actually care about. Um, anyway, so I just put that up. Well, 
Well, but but if we're to be honest, he's another guy who you gotta wonder was it WWE's fault that he was pretty underwhelming when he was there, or was it just that he turned it up a notch after they let him go? Um, I mean, it's it's one where did did they really kind of kind of miss the boat on him and over and overlook him when he was really something, or did he just suddenly get better after he left? And now, if he were to do the same and go back there, uh, yeah, at the very least in NXT, I, I get the feeling he's the kind of guy Triple H would push to the moon. We'll see, but he's a big reason why I wanted to go to that show, and you know, any go hang out with. And do stuff. Um, you know, I'm out. Mo, Mo is up for a night out. So that's there. Uh, that's Sean. You want to plug anything real quick? Uh, yeah, I'll go on a quick little closing rant here. First off, thank you to everybody, whether you're listening live right now or whether you downloaded. Thank you so much. We love to put on a great show for you guys every week. Um, if you're watching this on YouTube, do not forget to hit that like button, comment, subscribe. Subscribe. Give us your feedback. If you know of any franchises that we haven't touched that you would like to see us hit in the near future, by all means, feel more than free to let us know. You can also find us on Facebook by searching for the Rodlich in Broadcasting Network, where you will find updates on not only Long Road to Ruin, but Source Material, Bleacher Seeds, Screaming Boy Productions, and all of our other fine programs. Um, uh, Everyone Loves a Bad Guy. Uh, when that is not a, not on hiatus, which is an absolutely superb show. Um, the Ground and Pound radio show, our weekly rundown of the week that was at MMA with Jeffrey the Wildcat Harris and host Robert Winfrey, and uh, our also one-offs, such as our looks at the various Marvel Netflix shows, Coming up later this summer, we're going to have a one-off review of the fourth season of Orange is the New Black. All kinds of good stuff to find there. You can also find us anytime you want to. If you want to catch up on our backlog, listen to old old episodes, fill up that iPhone with some material for your commute, your run, your work, whatever you happen to be doing while you're listening. Check us out at iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or on Blog Talk Network by searching Rodlich and Broadcasting in broadcasting or Long Road to Ruin. And finally, a bit more of a personal plug. Please, everybody, uh, hit up our good friend and occasional commentator, Cole Marintet, a.k.a. The Film Twit. Uh, He has started recently streaming at least once, sometimes a couple times a day, on Twitch. So go look up The Film Twit Plays. You can also find him on Twitter at The Film Twit where he'll update his streaming schedule. He's been playing uh, quite a good diverse array of stuff lately. I wouldn't go promising that he'll play this or that. But he's a great guy, always funny, uh, <laughs> sometimes sometimes biting and, re- and really hysterical in just how just how much he hates some things, feel free to tell him that Sean sent you and suggested bringing up X-Men Days of Future Past. Um, <laughs> uh, always good, good for a laugh. Always good for some great, for some great gameplay. Always filmed with <laughs> But otherwise, I'm Sean. You're not. This has been our show. And never dull your colors for someone else's canvas. All right. Um... 
There we go. All right. Be well, be safe, and behave. We'll see you next week.